Good morning. morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church. It's good to have you here. Are you glad that you came? You glad you tuned in? So good to have you with us. Last Sunday, we started a new series entitled Anthem of Hope. And a working definition for hope, and I shared this last Sunday, is a confident and faith-filled expectation that something good is going to happen. It's a confident expectation of something good. And last week I told you that hope is a whole lot more than optimism. In fact, it's totally different than optimism. It goes well beyond having a positive attitude or wishful thinking. You see, in any given bad situation, the pessimist will always say, it's bad. It's really, really bad. In fact, it's terrible. And it's only going to get worse. But the optimists will look right over the top of bad news, and they will conclude it's really not that bad. In fact, it's manageable. And I look for it to get better. And what I just described for you is the classic glasses half empty versus glasses half full mentality. But a hope-filled person has a much different perspective. Hope says it may look bad, and it may very well be bad, and I'm not sure it's going to get any better, but here's what I'm doing. I'm believing in the faithfulness of God, and I'm standing upon his promises, because I know all of the promises of God are yes and amen. That's a hope-filled attitude toward our lives. It's a powerful declaration of the promises of God. And what hope is all about. And I would think that when it comes to God's promises, when when it comes to the word of God, most Christians, the majority of us, are all in. But you see, oftentimes, what becomes the perfect storm for hope is the normal, everyday ups and downs. Listen to me. It's the roller coaster ride of life that can bankrupt hope. And learning to navigate... The emotional pendulum swing from satisfaction to disappointment becomes hope's greatest challenge. Now, I'm going to repeat that last statement because I'm really proud of it. I'm really glad and happy the way that all came together. Just beautiful flow of the English language. Listen to it. Learning to navigate the emotional pendulum swing from satisfaction to disappointment. That can become hope's greatest challenge. Now, there's a story in the Bible that epitomizes what I just said, and I'd like to take a look at it this this morning. And so if you want to follow along in your Bible, your mobile device, I'm going to ask you to please turn uh, to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. And of course, we'll have it here on the screen, but I know many of you like to bring your Bible with you, and so here's your opportunity Book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4. And while you're turning, let me give you a quick announcement. For the last nine or ten years now, every May, on the first Sunday of May, we've hosted a special Mission Sunday service. And during that service, we've given you a report, we've updated you on our missions and outreach plan for that year, and then we've received a special missions offering. The goal is to raise $100,000 to finance our mission budget. Again, we've been doing this for many, many years. 
Well, back in May of this year, since we were right in the middle of the pandemic lockdown, we decided to postpone Mission Sunday, and I told you we would be rescheduling it for later on in the year. Guess what? It's later on in the year. And remember, I asked you, and I asked you nicely, to begin to prepare financially for it. Well, because it's 2020 and a year like no other, a very unique year, instead of the normal Mission Sunday event, we decided to come up with something brand new. It's another community Christian church first. It's Give Back Sunday. That's what we've come up with. That's what we're calling it. Not Mission Sunday, but Give Back Sunday. It's going to take place on November the 15th. What are we calling it? Sharp group. What date? November the 15th. If God has blessed you financially this year, and you didn't lose your job, or maybe you lost your job, but the unemployment benefits was a blessing to you. If you've been able to sidestep all of the COVID craziness, then we're going to provide you with an opportunity to show your appreciation and give back with a generous year-end gift. And just like the Mission Sunday concept, we're going to be receiving this offering on the 15th, this Give Back Sunday offering, and all of the money raised on Sunday, November the 15th, and throughout the year that is designated Give Back Sunday money, it's going to go towards our missions and outreach plan in addition to our online streaming costs. And in, in the event you don't already know, it costs tens of thousands of dollars to connect online, to start up online, and to keep it going. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask everybody to do this, to make a special effort to be with us on the 15th, whether in person or online, doesn't matter. And I'm going to ask you to prayerfully get involved and, and pray about making a sizable and generous donation to this Give Back Sunday so that we can keep our on stream, their online streaming going and we can continue to make good on all of our mission and outreach commitments. Would you do that? Would you at least consider it? And I know you like me to usually throw out a number. You like a number. I know that. You know, a um, suggested co- uh, price or dollar amount per family. I'm not going to do that this year. What I'm going to ask you to do is pray about it. How about that? You know, talk with your spouse, talk it over with your family, and ask the Lord what he wants you to give. And if you ask him and he gives you the number, I'm going to be okay with it. I promise you. The only thing I'm going to ask you to do is be generous. All right, November 15th, Give Back Sunday. We'll be telling you more about that in the coming weeks. 2 Kings chapter 4. Let's begin reading with verse 8. Again, we're talking about navigating life's normal patterns of happy times and disappointments. One day Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would always stop there for something to eat. She said to her husband, I'm sure that this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then you have a place to stay whenever he comes by. One day Elisha returned to Shunem, and he went up to the upper room to rest. He said to his servant Gehazi, tell the woman from Shunem, I want to speak with her. When she appeared, Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her we appreciate the kind concern you have shown us. What can we do for you? 
Can we put in a good word for you to the king or to the commander of the army? No, she replied. My, my family takes good care of me. Later, Elisha asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? I mean, he really wanted to bless her. Gehazi replied, well, she doesn't have a son and her husband's an old man. Just a real truthful servant. <laughs> Call her back again, Elisha told him. And when the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, next year at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. But sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant. And at, the time, at, at that time, the following year, she had a son, just as Elisha had said. All right, let's pause right here for a moment. Long story short, a kind-hearted and generous woman who lived in Shunem, she decided to use her spiritual gift, the, the gift of hospitality that God had given to her, to meet the physical needs of Elisha the prophet. And so not only did she cook for him and feed him every time he was in town, somehow she convinced her husband to build a guest room for him in their own house. So whenever Elisha was in town, he could stay there in the guest room. Well, one day after he visited uh, back in Shunem, he contemplated just how good of a woman this really was. He was just thinking about what a wonderful woman she was, and he wanted to do something for her. So he, he called her in and said, do you have any unresolved matters going on in your life right now? Can we appeal to the king uh, on your behalf? And this woman politely said, no, thank you. I'm well taken care of. And that statement, her, her, what she said back to Elisha, that leads me to believe that she did not want anything from Elisha. It wasn't like she found out he was a prophet and she thought, maybe if I'm kind to him, maybe he'll do something for me. Her willingness to bless him and to show him kindness it came with no strings attached. She didn't have any hidden or, uh, uh, agenda or ulterior motives. She just wanted to be a blessing to this man. But he wanted to do her a favor. He wanted to show his appreciation. He, he really wanted her to know how much he appreciated what she did. And that's when he found out that she didn't have any children. So he called her back the second time and he said to her, I want you to know this time next year, God's going to bless you with a son, and you're going to have a little baby boy. But instead of falling on her knees in thanksgiving and with gratitude of heart, this woman said something that's very surprising to me. In 2 Kings 4.16, here's what she said, Oh, man of God, please don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. Don't get my hopes up. You see, that response leads me to believe, it tells me that this woman had experienced great disappointment in her life and she couldn't handle another letdown. I think she desperately wanted to believe what Elisha said to her. She already concluded he was a man of God. She knew that there was something special about him. I think she wanted to get excited about the prospect of having a child. But like so many people today, 
She was trapped in a hope that continually oscillated between joyful celebration and a heartsick disappointment. And so this woman, she begged Elisha. She said, oh no, don't deceive me. Don't say that to me. Because there's just no way in the world that she could have her hope rekindled not even one more time to face yet another agonizing disappointment. And friend, that's precisely what happens in this story. Additional pain, devastation, and heartache. And in accordance with the prophet's word, exactly what Elisha had said to this woman, she got pregnant. And about a year later, she had a son, a little baby boy. And she loved that little guy. She was so filled with joy. But then, just a short time later, a few years after that, her son, her little boy, became ill. He got sick. And the Bible tells us he died. And he died in her arms. Can you imagine that? And so this woman, she didn't waste a single moment. She made a beeline to where Elisha was staying. And when she found him, she took hold of him and she said, didn't I tell you, don't get my hopes up? And she was completely devastated. And who could blame her? But how many of you know the end of the story? After this little boy died, and as he was laid out on the bed and they were preparing to host a memorial service for him, that's when Elisha made his way back to Shunem. He stretched himself over this little boy. He interceded on his behalf. He prayed for him. And God raised this little boy back to life again. On that occasion, this woman who had no hope, her hope had been taken away from her, she experienced resurrection, life, and power. And I'm talking about the same resurrection that changed the world on Easter Sunday when Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave. That's what she experienced. And friends, that's where true hope comes from. That's where our hope comes from. It's not what we want or what we wish we had. It's not in our own human desires or what we dream about. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ and what he's already done for us on the cross we become recipients of every good thing that he has ever done because of his love for us and his sacrifice. And those are the kinds of things that Dave was talking about this morning after the worship time when he was just moved by the presence of God. See, a preacher said it this way and it's become a popular hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, with that in mind, I want to speak with you for just a few minutes about the upcoming presidential election. And I want to preface this segment of the message by saying Community Christian Church is not what I would call a political church. In fact, in the past 28 years, 
we have purposely and even proactively kept politics out of the pulpit. That hasn't been accidental. It's been purposeful. It's been intentional. However, please understand that the upcoming election is not just about politics. What's happening in our nation today, among other things, is a fierce battle for religious liberty and freedom. We are three weeks away from what I would call the most critical presidential election in my lifetime. And that's not something that you hear me say every four years. In fact, you've never heard me say that because I've never said it. What happens this November will very likely influence how future generations will live. And I'm talking about our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren, and so on. That's what's at stake here. And that's why this time around, in good faith, I just can't be silent. And so after a good deal of soul-searching and a tremendous amount of prayer, I reached out to the elders of our church. And I got a hold of our board of directors, and I asked them to prayerfully consider allowing me to address this subject matter this one day. And they gave me the permission to do it. But I want you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you to listen to what I have to say with an open mind. Can you do that? Can you do that? Can we go against our current culture and actually listen to what I have to say without reacting or becoming emotionally charged? That's what I'm going to ask you to do today. And I want to humbly say this, that I have served Community Christian Church for the past 28 years. Teresa and I have been here. And to the best of our ability, our human efforts, we have been honest and sincere, and in the process, we have tried to earn your trust. And as local church pastors and shepherds, we have one main objective, one responsibility. It's to care for your soul, to pray for you, to watch over you, to, to lead you, to guide you. And nothing has changed. That's still our responsibility. And yes, I know that the coming election has a lot of moving parts. I'm well aware of it. And I know there's a more controversy than ever before, enough controversy to last a lifetime. My intention is not to offend. I don't want to add more fuel to the fire. And I'm certainly not going to stand up here and bully you or try to get you to do what I tell you to do. I'm not going to try to force you to do anything different than what you have in your mind to do. You have your opinion. I'm well aware that I respect your opinion. I really do. I make no judgments. But there's so much at stake. I'm compelled to speak up and share my opinion if you're at all interested in it. From my perspective, this election is not about a man. It's not about a candidate or a political party. The 2020 presidential election is a battle for the soul of America. And by that, I'm talking about spiritual warfare. 
And because spiritual warfare is involved, I am fully engaged as a pastor of the church. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is take a close and careful look at the issues and policies. And in the process, try to get the big picture. When it comes to the policies and the critical platform issues, which side best represents our Christian convictions? And I'm talking about our morals and our values. What's important to us, what we believe in, what we hold so dear. Now, in Joshua chapter 5, after Jesus gave Joshua the assignment to gather the people together, spend some time in prayer and fasting, and then cross over the River Jordan and begin to possess the promised land. Remember when God told Joshua to do that? Their first stop was Jericho. And one night before they made their way into Jericho, Joshua was doing a little covert reconnaissance, you know, spying out the enemy. And he was all by himself when all of a sudden he encountered a man with a drawn sword. Joshua was startled and he said to the man, uh, are you for our side or are you for the other side? Do you remember how this warrior responded? He said, neither. As the commander of the army of the Lord, I'm on the Lord's side. That's his exact words. I'm on the Lord's side, and that's what I'm asking you to do, to select the side that best represents what we as believers stand for. Now, unfortunately, Jesus is not on the ticket. Jesus is not running for president of the United States in 2020. It might be a little bit easier if he was on the ballot, although somebody would probably find some fault in that. So instead of fixating on the personality, what I'm trying to do myself is to focus on the policies. And here's what I'm standing for. I'm standing for life. To protect the rights of the unborn. I'm fighting for those who can't fight for themselves because that's what God expects from us. That's what God has asked us to do in his word. And yes, I know, abortion's been around for a long time, 47 years to be exact. No one's been able to fix it. No one's been able to correct it. But maybe, just maybe in this generation, we can turn it around. And do you know there are people who have given their whole lives to seeing this happen? And so in addition to life, I'm standing for religious freedom. For the side that acknowledges that churches are essential and that the Christian voice needs to be heard, that we're still one nation under God. How many are still that? And that students should be allowed to attend public schools and secular universities without being unfairly targeted and persecuted for their faith. And this is possible today. It's possible with the right Supreme Court justices. I'm also standing for law and order. And as you well know, I lived in that world. I served in law enforcement for 10 years. And please believe me when I tell you, we need a unified and empowered police force. And as I say that, let me be very clear. I am raising a strong voice, a loud voice against racism and injustice. A loud voice. And even though I don't agree at all with the organization's methods and ideology, Make no mistake, black lives matter to me. 
They matter. And what happened in Minneapolis was one of the ugliest things I've seen in my life. That can never happen again, not even one more time in this country. And so, yes, we need change. We need police reform. But defunding or dismantling police departments and allowing lawlessness in the streets, that's not the answer either. I'm standing for secure borders and safe communities. I believe that the United States of America can win the war on drugs and human trafficking. I really believe that with all my heart. You know, this church has literally poured tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into human sex trafficking. I've said this often, I'll say it again, I'll keep saying it as long as I have breath. Human sex trafficking and modern day slavery should be the number one cause of our generation. We should fight it with all of our hearts and there's some people who are. And I believe we can win the war. I, I believe we can end human trafficking. But we have to go after it. We have to fight that battle the best way that we know how. Last one, I'm standing for Israel. God's original <laughs> covenant people. I'm praying for peace in the Middle East. Standing with our Jewish friends. Because God made a promise in his word. He gave us a promise. He made it very clear. Those who bless Israel, he said, I will bless. And how many know we still need the blessing of God today? Not only on our nation, we need the blessing of God on the church. The church absolutely has to have God's blessing. And God says, you throw a blessing and you pray for Israel, and I'm going to bless you. Okay, as I begin to wind down, and the operative word here is begin, okay, we're not going to land the plane just yet, but we're starting descent, okay, what I want to do is I want to talk for just a few moments about one of the kings of Judah, his name is King Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was one of the good guys, he was a good king, not because I say he was, but rather because God said it, listen to 2 Kings chapter 18, Verses 5 through 7. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord, did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. How many of you know that's a pretty good testimony? You'd like to have that on your resume. A very impressive statement that the Spirit of God said in 2 Kings is there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. But you know, there came a time in Hezekiah's life later on after we have this passive scripture where Hezekiah became sick, and I'm talking about terminally ill. He was on his deathbed. And so the Lord sent Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah with a word of encouragement. Here's what he said. Put your house in order because you are not going to recover. You are going to die. And as soon as Isaiah gave the king that message, guess what? He bolted. He didn't want even Hezekiah to think about it for a second. And right after Hezekiah received that message, the scripture tells us that Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and he began to cry out to God in mercy. I mean, he just started to pray like he had never prayed before. And guess what? God heard his prayer and God changed his mind. 
Before Isaiah had a chance to leave the palace courts, he went back, God sent him back to Hezekiah with a second word. This time, God said to him, okay, I've heard your prayers, I've seen your afflictions, and I am going to heal you, and in addition to healing you, I'm going to add 15 years to your life, Hezekiah. And it happened. A few days later, a miracle took place, and this man that everybody thought was going to die, he got up off of his deathbed, and he lived another 15 years. Now, it appears that the king of Babylon heard about Hezekiah's demise and his sickness, and the word on the streets was Hezekiah was going to die. He didn't, he didn't get the news that the Lord had touched him. And so what he did, the king of Babylon, he sent some of his top officials to the palace in Jerusalem with sympathy gifts for Hezekiah. And Hezekiah met the entourage of Babylonian officials and princes, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, you didn't hear, but, you know, I fought through all that sickness, and I stand before you today healed. I'm well. And in addition to that, let me show you all of my other accomplishments and all the treasures that I've been able to accumulate over the years. And if you read between the lines here, King Hezekiah, the, the one who was mighty in God, the one who God testified there was no king like him anywhere in Judah, he got a little lifted up in pride. He, he got him a little arrogant. And not only did he take credit for all the good that happened in his life, he even acknowledged that he was responsible for the healing. And that's a no-no with God. As you well know, God loves humility. He's, he's, he doesn't, the scripture says he sets himself against pride and arrogance. And as soon as the Babylonians left, God sent Isaiah back to Hezekiah with a third message. You'll read about it in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 16 through 19. Here's what it says. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to the message from the Lord. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons, your children, your grandchildren, will be taken away into exile. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this message you have given me from the Lord is good, for the king was thinking at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Without a show of hands, let me say that again, without any hands, how many of you agree with Hezekiah? How many of you think this was a good word? This was not a good word. This was a message of judgment and devastation and destruction and tragedy. And a few years after Hezekiah died, because the Lord said it wouldn't happen in his lifetime, judgment fell in Israel. And his own sons and daughters, his children, his grandchildren, they were carried away into captivity. And those future generations, they suffered the devastating consequences of the actions of King Hezekiah. And how did Hezekiah respond to all that? Yeah. At least it's not going to happen to me. I'm going to be good. Is that what we're after, friends? Is that what matters most to us today? That we're good? That there's peace in our lives? That we get what we want? 
Can we look out into the future beyond this moment and see what's taking place? Can we get the big picture and understand what is at stake here? You see, as soon as Hezekiah heard that third word from Isaiah, you know how he should have responded? The same way he responded the first time around when his life was on the line. When he heard that word of judgment coming from God, he should have got down on his knees and prayed, Oh no, dear God, not future generations. Oh please, Lord. This is not their responsibility. They didn't do anything wrong. This isn't on them, it's on me. I'm responsible. I'm the one who messed up. You see, that's the heart of God. It's always been uh, the, the idea that, that God communicates to us that we own our mistakes and our failures. And what we do with them is we fall forward. We fail forward into the hands of God, which is precisely what King David did. The man after God's own heart, the king after God's own heart. Do you know that King David messed up as well on occasion? There were times, just like in Hezekiah's life, where King David was lifted up with pride and arrogance. It happened when he numbered the armies of Israel, counted all the fighting men, because he wanted the nations of the world to know just how great of a general and mighty a king he was. And when he did that, God wasn't happy with him. God was only upset with David a handful of times. This was one of them. And he sent the prophet Gad to David, just like he sent Isaiah to Hezekiah to pronounce a word of judgment over Israel. And the prophet said, it's not just going to happen to you, David. It's going to happen to your family. It's going to happen to all the families of Israel. And do you remember David's response? Dear God, don't do that. Not the people, Lord. They're innocent. They didn't do anything wrong. I sinned. I messed up. I was the foolish one. Bring your judgment on me and only on me. And when given three choices of punishment, recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 14, here's what David said. Here's what the king that had the heart of God, here's, here's what he said. Let us fall into the hands of God, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Do not let me fall into the hands of men. Friend, this is my prayer for the upcoming election. This is my appeal before God's throne of grace, that we would fall into the hands of God because great is his mercy toward us. God is sovereign. God will have his way. And I pray we fall into God's way. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he sided with me. In Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22 and 23, he said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. How often? They are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. In years to come, and I close with this. When we look back on 2020, and we consider all of the adversity that we've been through these months. The worldwide pandemic, the tragic deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, the civil unrest, the lawlessness, the fighting in the streets, the political mudslinging, character assassination, cancel culture, and all the hate associated with that. When we look back 
Instead of saying or instead of concluding, 2020 was the absolute worst year in modern history. Hands down, it was a disaster. Instead of that being our testimony, I would hope that we would say in 2020, the devil himself took a vicious and aggressive and massive swipe at the United States of America, but the church, the church of Jesus Christ, stood up and said, oh, no, you don't. Not on our watch. To become fully engaged with the real enemy, not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And together, did you hear me? Together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, mask to mask, we prevail. Not just survive, but overcome the powers of darkness. The church did that. That's my prayer. That's my cry. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. This morning we lift our eyes to you, Lord. Because your scripture tells us, your word tells us, that's where our help comes from, nowhere else, Lord. We can't put our focus, our attention on anything else. We lift our eyes to you. Our hope, our help, everything that we need, it is sustained in you and you only. And so we trust you, Lord. We're not just being optimistic here. And it's good to be positive. It's good, Lord, to believe that better days are ahead. But even beyond all of that, our hope, Lord, is in your faithfulness. You have proven yourself faithful to us time and time again. You cannot fail us. It is not in your nature to fail us. And we stand upon your word, Lord. We stand upon the promise of God because we are truly convinced all of God's promises are yes and amen. Not one single promise is false. And so do something in our hearts, Lord God. Bind us together. Help us to rise above all of the craziness that's in our world today and put your special anointing, your empowerment, and your revelation on your church. Lord, you're calling us to step up today. You're calling the church of Jesus Christ to take a stand and lead the way. And Lord, we say, here we are together. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Send us as a mighty army, as a church. We know with you we cannot fail. We choose, Lord, to fall into the hands of God because you are merciful and your mercies are new every morning. Touch every heart, Lord, in this place.